My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have two degrees in International Affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the Israel-Hamas armed conflict for the third time through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic? And let's be honest, again, today, um, why, are we, why are we still not done uh, talking about Israel-Palestine? Hello, Dario. Well, the quick answer to that question is that the world isn't done with it because the violence is still occurring. And it is very clear from feedback that we have received and that um, is visible all throughout the media as well as that the world still is in need to process what is happening right this is a conflict much more so than many other conflicts that triggers an emotional response from people across the globe and uh, as a result it is something that we can't just ignore having said that though there is always this dilemma that we've got in this podcast about first of all how much do we talk about specifically the Western bubble, as in Western policymaking versus international relations in general. And I think that lately we have made a choice to move a little bit more towards international relations because the Western bubble has been dealt with so often already in past episodes that listeners might get a little bit tired um, of it. And another issue here that's, that we are facing continuously is how much of it is the practical side of international relations that we want to analyze and how much is the conceptual underlying foundation, the philosophical foundation and all that. And once again, I think that lately we have become more focused on the practical aspects of IR. So here we've got a conflict that is occupying the minds of the world. Israel and Palestine is still very much on the lips of every IR student worldwide, as well as um, many journalists. And um, it allows us to look at it from a more practical perspective rather than the big conceptual and theoretical debates that maybe we've had in the past. And what are the facts? Since our previous episode covering the Israel-Hamas conflict uh, on October 18th, armed violence has continued to escalate. Um, and for today's fact sheet, right, usually I read out uh, a quick fact sheet of about a minute. Um, we felt that facts in this, in this particular topic they need some context. Um, they need some commentary, and that is very difficult to do within, you know, within two hundred or 300, uh, 300 words. Which is why now for today's fact sheet, we're just going through the developments of the last two weeks since our last episode um, and commenting them a little bit, just making sure that everyone was up to speed and making sure that the facts, you know, are there within perspective. So let's start um, with uh, basically on, on October 12th, we had the announcement of a full blockade uh, from the Israeli military of the Gaza Strip. This was uh, five days after the original incident had occurred where Hamas fighters basically yeah, incurred into, into Israel and, and you know, killed about 1,400 uh, 1, people. And then a day after the announcement of the full blockade, we've had the Israeli Defense Forces issue a leave order in the north of Gaza, basically telling civilians to leave the north of Gaza because the uh, the military was going to move in. And Hamas uh, on the other side, so there were reports of this that Hamas kind of told people to stay, which that's interesting from both perspectives, right? So from an Israeli perspective, you see, okay, trying to... Uh, you know, convey the image of we want to prevent uh, civilians from getting involved. And then Hamas, mm, I mean, what, what? so what would you say to the average person out there who's not necessarily working in international relations? What was the motivation behind what Hamas did? Well, in many ways, this is a good example of asymmetrical warfare of the new type of conflict that you see, right? This is not, despite how some media report on it, 
this is not a case of two armies finding each other on the battlefield and shooting it out. And at the end of the day, the, the, the one with most soldiers left wins. That's sort of the Napoleonic warfare from 200 years ago. Globally, that has been disappearing. In that way, in that sense, by the way, the war between Ukraine and Russia is strangely traditional, right? Um, it, it, the the Russia-Ukraine war is kind of the outlier in modern conflict. The violence in Gaza is very modern in the sense that you've got one dom militarily completely dominant force, Israel, and then you've got sort of the guerrilla tactics, the 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 informal. Uh, resistance without a formalized military structure by Hamas. And of course, um, Israel would love for the X number of Hamas fighters that are left to just be isolated from everyone else because Israel could easily wipe them out. They could literally, with, with missiles, we want Israel would have no problem killing Hamas fighters if they could isolate them. Of course, they can't isolate them because they're surrounded by millions of civilians who are not fighting Israel, who are just Palestinians trying to survive and live their lives. And of course, for Hamas, that is a useful fact because that means that they can hide among the crowds. Also keep in mind that even though there are some clearly identifiable Hamas fighters, a lot of those who might at some point take up arms against Israel don't walk around with a t-shirt, I'm with Hamas. They are actually very difficult to distinguish from your average vegetable seller or your average doctor or your average whoever. Um, and so this idea that Israel kind of has is there are, let's say, a thousand Hamas fighters there. And if we kill them, then we've won the conflict. Hamas doesn't want those thousand fighters to be killed. But on top of that, even if you were to kill those thousand fighters, there will be another 10,000 that tomorrow might take up arms and that you can't identify being Israel, right? So you have this really weird situation at the moment where Israel just would like to proclaim victory by, by targeting those that they believe are right now resisting um, Israel with military, with, with violent means. Uh, whereas the reality says that even if Israel were to succeed, that doesn't solve any long-term issues. And then, right a few days after this, so on October 17th, we've had, uh, and right, this is difficult now with regards to facts, and as, especially in, in today's environment, we've had the uh, Al-Ali Hospital explosion, I'm going to call it for now, uh, where a significant amount of people have died. And this is about, about this is about as much of a fact as I'm willing to give because everything else we don't know. Um, there is uh, reports from all sides. There is intelligence reports from the Europeans, uh, from the Americans, from the Israelis. There's what uh, what the health ministry in Gaza says. Um, there are different accounts to who caused this explosion, who is is to blame here. But this is basically the reason why we're not going to engage in any of this because it's uh, terrible that something like this happens. It's terrible that people die. It's terrible that something like this happens uh, in and around a hospital. Um, but it's it's maybe harsh to say this, but we are not necessarily, for the purpose of this episode of analyzing international relations, we're not necessarily interested in a singular event and the resulting blame game because it doesn't help us understand the dynamics that lead for this singular event, well, for, for this event to be occurring at all. Yes, and even from a policy perspective, and even from a, if you're an outsider and you want to somehow um, provide value to to the situation, bring somehow peace to the situation, then the actual question of what exactly happened at the hospital and who actually did it is just not a path that leads to productive outcomes. In the sense that, of course, it's vaguely interesting to know, where, was this was this an, an Israeli operation gone awry? Or was this Hamas somehow being very cynical in their tactics or whatever... Uh, whatever reality is, is vaguely interesting to know, but 
whatever the answer is doesn't help us in solving the overall problem. The overall problem is a bigger problem. It is an environment in which this violence happens. And what you see a lot in the media, certainly social media, is that people discussing the hospital are trying to basically get ammunition to blame the other side, right? If you're pro Israeli, whatever that means, um, then you want to be able to say, oh, it's just, just Islamic Jihad uh, being evil and killing their own citizens. If you are pro-Palestinian, whatever that means, you are, uh, you're going to say, oh, look, the Israelis, they don't care about uh, civilians, they don't care about casualties. And it gives you ammunition to fight the war of words. But that war of words is not really useful or in any way conducive to better outcomes. What we need to look at is how is there an environment in which a hospital get, gets bombed in the first place? How is there an environment in which children die every day? As we speak, children are dying. What, what has led to that environment and how can we stop that environment? And those questions are much more meta, big questions, rather than those endless debates about specific details. And the result of this explosion um, was that a day later, uh, Biden uh, arrived in Israel right, for, to, to meet with Netanyahu, and he was supposed to continue to, to Egypt afterwards um, to have a bit of a, a summit uh, with Egypt and Jordan. However, that summit was canceled right, uh, over basically this, this explosion at the hospital. Um, then for a week, you have, again, a lot of violence, a lot of people dying, um, a lot of world leaders flying in and out of Israel, Jordan and Egypt, trying to do, well, having diplomatic efforts, right, to maybe get a ceasefire or to get uh, humanitarian uh, aid into, into Gaza. And then a week uh, later, on October 27th, the United Nations General Assembly uh, had a vote on calling for an immediate inter, uh, for an immediate humanitarian truce, um, and there were 120 countries voting in favor, 45 uh, countries abstained, and 14 voted against. And this is one of the points that we will take into the analysis later, uh, where we will see who were these countries that abstained and voted against, and how many of them were maybe part of the Western bubble. Then on a day after this, uh, we have the uh, ground invasion that starts, right? So from October 7th until October 28th, you basically just mostly had Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. But then on October 28th, the, uh, the ground troops actually started uh, moving in on, on northern Gaza. Um, again, you have a lot of, uh, now, now is the time where you have a lot of terrible images coming out, you know, a lot of, right, the hospital bomb, uh, well, the hospital explosion, uh, missiles uh, targeted at refugee camps. Um, well, again, whatever that really means. It's again, it's just. I want to stay away from 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 making too factual statements. But here you now see a bit of uh, an international right, concern about the, the humanitarian situation, and you see uh, Netanyahu kind of trying to give a soft stance by allowing more aid trucks into, into, uh, into Gaza, but at the same time uh, ruling out a ceasefire and declaring a, a time for war. Um, and then a few days ago, uh, just, uh, just three days ago, uh, again for context, we're recording this on uh, November 5th, but on November 2nd, uh, Israel allowed uh, uh, Palestinians with foreign or dual nationality to leave uh, Gaza for Egypt, and Egypt allowed this as well. And uh, the last fact that I want to end with this fact sheet is that as of uh, November 2nd, 9,000 Palestinians have died um, in, in Gaza with 32,000 being injured. And since, uh, since uh, October 7th until November 2nd, 1,400 Israelis have died with 5,400 being injured. What is the bubble? So when we now move on to the bubble perspective, Let's, uh, let's start with the vote that we had in the United Nations uh, General Assembly. Um, and I just, I read out the, the results earlier, right, that 120 countries voted in favor and 45 abstained and 14 voted against. Um, and right, this resolution called for a humanitarian truce and tr also tried to stay away from the politics in and around it, right? They said, we don't like killing on either side, but let's please stop dropping bombs all, all sides everyone please stop dropping bombs um in itself maybe not the most controversial um resolution that we've seen in the uh, united nations um general assembly 
let's focus on the countries that have actually voted against. Um, I think there's two countries which aren't necessarily a surprise, uh, Israel and the United States. That's, that was to be expected. That's to be expected. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out before going to the country specifically that now it's it's not a controversial uh, resolution at all, but these resolutions are also kind of symbolic games. They don't have any practical value. The UN cannot force Israel, doesn't have the means to force Israel to do anything, right? So it is more creating a, a symbolic narrative that maybe over time put some extra pressure on the Netanyahu government. And that's about it. So it is a uncontroversial text in itself. It should be uncontroversial in itself. And it is a text that has very little practical implication. So in that sense, we shouldn't overvalue the importance of such a vote. However, looking at these specific countries is interesting from a perspective of where do countries stand with respect to this right so it's more like a signaling to the world hey we are this country and we believe that this is right uh, so it's basically a way of communicating of countries where they stand on international affairs way more than any practical outcomes coming from general assembly votes um yeah so G G germany will always, in these situations, of course, abstain or, depending on the text, uh, vote against. Uh, that's that's reasonable. That is that it, We know that from Germany that is very much related to the conversations we've had in the past in this podcast, in this podcast about German recognition of its own history that you're very familiar with um, and, and the way that Germany has processed its own past relating to the Second World War. That is something that Germany will not escape, and and I don't think that anyone will blame Germany for that, right? Uh, that is, that is just a given. I hope not. No, uh, it would be silly if people were to aggressively go after Germany in that sense, because Germany are not the bad guys here. They are the ones who just are trying to be very very careful, given the destruction that was caused in the past in their name, right? So a. I, I know there has been some criticism from parts uh, toward Germany, like Germany being the most powerful country in Europe, and therefore they need to take a stronger stance on this. Let's allow Germany this safe space. But then uh, that's uh, you know I'm, I'm glad that you're you're giving my country the the, the safe space here. Uh, then let's let's not give your country that honor because the Netherlands also abstained. And and what's the, the, Boulder? Go ahead and defend yourself. Speaking rep representing all of the Netherlands. You know, this is this is today's tone and how we talk to each other. Defend yourself and explain why the Netherlands abstained. Oh, how well you know me. Defending the Netherlands is really my my favorite pastime. No, uh, there is no defense for that. It is it is it is incredibly dodgy that the Netherlands finds it apparently um, not in their interest to vote for a humanitarian resolution like this. So unlike Germany, the Netherlands doesn't shouldn't be given such a safe space. Um, for once, for one very important reason, that even though the Netherlands also has a anti-Semitic past and also has serious questions to answer when it comes to the Second World War, uh, the Netherlands has never gone through the historical process that Germany went through. So the, the Netherlands cannot claim um, a a position of, hey, you know what, we just have to be very modest because of our darkness in, in our in, in the 20th century, because the Netherlands has never accepted any serious responsibility in that sense. For the Netherlands not to be able to say, hey, you know what, let's have a ceasefire, let's help people in need, let's keep babies from dying, is simply outrageous. And I am deeply, deeply ashamed and embarrassed that the country that represents me, I've got a Dutch passport, has taken this uh, this this approach. It is it, there. There's basically nothing good to say about that, unlike the German case. Right, and I mean, obviously, the Netherlands stands representative here for for the West, uh, because out of the 45 countries that abstained, and also out of the 14 countries that voted against, um, as a well, a suspicious amount of countries are Western. Right, so we're talking about. Um, Slovakia, Serbia, we're talking about Lithuania, Latvia, Finland, Canada, um, where you, you see that the West, once again, somewhat, seems somewhat isolated here on the international stage. 
absolutely um and it is not just a matter of the countries abstaining and countries voting against if you look at what canada for example tried to do canada is always sort of the more diplomatic version of the united states right the the, the, the two have in many ways a very similar outlook on the world but canada tries to get there through diplomatic means and the united states often does it through their hard power uh, methods Canada tried to introduce a, uh, a amendment to the resolution saying, hey, we will vote in favor of this resolution as long as it clearly states at the beginning that Hamas is kind of responsible, that Hamas started all of this. And that has nothing to do with the resolution, right? So it is not just the West taking this position of voting, but they actively try to give cover to the violence that is happening at the moment in Gaza. And... They try to make it easier for the Israeli government to continue this very destructive um, policy, this very destructive approach to the situation. And so that is something that the West has to reckon with, especially given that isolation that you mentioned, namely that the rest of the world doesn't accept this anymore. The rest of the world is fed up with this. And in a 21st century where the world is realigning, we just did an episode on that, where countries are no longer beholden to Western geopolitics and they can actually choose to go with China or with India or with Latin America or they can can take their own position within global affairs. This isolation of the West is deeply, deeply damaging, not just to Canada, not just to the Netherlands, but also to the West as an entity as a whole. They they have lost their moral high grounds. They have lost their ability to influence the world uh, in any significant moral or narrative way. Mm. Yeah. There is um, there's a few countries uh, I wanna I wanna single out um, still um, who voted against. I mean we already talked about. Right, Israel and the United States voting against that obviously makes sense. Uh, then there's a surprising amount of uh, small islands. So Fiji, uh, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, uh, Tonga, who also voted against. Um, what's the deal here? Uh, is this, are, are these just, uh, you know, are, are they all very closely allied with Israel? Or is that maybe pressure from other bigger players? Well, I mean, there, there is this big monster on one side of the Pacific called uh, the United States, right? Which is, of course, very, very influential in the politics uh, of these these smaller island states. Um, But there is another additional issue, namely that a lot of these countries have a very strong Christian um, tradition within their own populations. And uh, those, especially the evangelicals, once again, are a group that are naturally supportive of Israel, right? That are naturally on that side. So it's a combination of the geopolitics of just being, if you like, in the sphere of influence of the United States, but also having some inherent genuine sympathy towards Israel that they might not have for the Palestinians because they don't have such a relationship with the Arab world or with um, Palestinian history. So, so you and the listeners know that I sometimes like to take international relations at absurdum um, and and may and kind of just point out how 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 ridiculous these things is. And I'm trying to think how how is this playing out, right? So the so everyone knows this vote is coming up within within the United Nations. Um, do you think that uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations takes the time to talk to these islands uh, individually and say oh, we should vote uh, f- with us? Do you think that uh, it's a text message? of make sure you vote with us or do you think that it's just assumed and they they just know that they have to vote with them uh, i i expect that this is advisor uh, so it's advisors from the us not certainly not the us ambassador advisors to the us who just have a quick conversation in the hallways with whoever represents these countries right uh, there there is no uh, this, this and this is these are really simple straightforward conversations because like i said it's not simply a the order from washington it is also a natural tendencies for these countries to vote in this way and so these two things come together right 
there, there's a bit of bribery in, in the UN as well, right? That is important to realize. Bribery in the sense of not direct corruption, but in the sense of, okay, if I vote now in on behalf of Israel, will Israel give me something? Will the United States give me something? Um, there, there are, for example, cases like that when it comes to uh, Japan influencing landlocked, landlocked countries to vote in favor of whale hunting within the UN, right? Uh, if you're Zambia or if you're Sudan, South Sudan, you have no interest in whale hunting because you have no access to the sea. But if Japan offers you sufficient diplomatic and economic support, then you're happy to go along. And that's kind of what you're seeing here as well. So it's a, it's a number of factors coming together. These shouldn't have been very difficult conversations. What's the international relations context? So this is a new segment which we've uh, decided to introduce, uh, where, as Balder, as you mentioned in the beginning uh, of this episode, that we always have the struggle of, are we talking about the Western bubble only? Are we also taking international relations into, into account? So that perspective, um, it's also the question of topical versus more broad conceptual uh, concepts. We decided to solve this a little bit uh, through introducing this new category. So what's the international relations perspective? Uh, between the the bubble uh, category and between the damage category, and the main well idea we want to focus on now in in this segment is some you, in the preparation to this episode you said something very interesting that I hadn't thought about before where this is not this conflict um, has a bigger impact on international relations than the international relations has an impact on this conflict. And that actually a lot of countries are using this time now to kind of reposition themselves on the global stage and rearrange their relations. And I think it would be really interesting to look at some of these actors and see in what way they're doing this. And the first one uh, we should look at here is uh, is Russia, um, right? For, for one and a half years, we couldn't stop talking about Russia and how evil Russia is in the Western bubble. Um, and now there's a an interesting narrative coming out of Russia, right? That uh, Russia very much cares about uh, humanity and the humanitarian situation uh, within Gaza. And that the United States is, by with the United States backing Israel, they are responsible for the suffering in Gaza, um, which is interesting considering the current events uh, happening in Ukraine. Yeah, in some ways, um, and I'm not accusing um, Russians of, you know, being happy about seeing lives lost in the Gaza, uh, in Gaza City. But uh, in some ways, this is very good news for Moscow, right? Because it, it distracts the world away from Ukraine to another uh, conflict. Uh, on top of that, the war in Ukraine has become a little bit boring in the eyes of global media because it's now a stalemate. So that helps as well. But certainly the, the eyes of the world are focused now on Gaza, are focused on Israel and Palestine. And uh, now Russia can actually play a role that they're much more comfortable with, namely that of a global leader from their perspective that isn't, doesn't have to defend itself against accusations, but can take the moral high ground. And just like as we will see later with other countries, they can do that quite easily because the West is not taking that moral high ground, right? So their natural rivals, the United States and to a certain extent Western Europe, are have have ducked themselves into a very difficult dodgy corner. As I just said, I'm ashamed that my country couldn't vote along with such a symbolic and, and obvious resolution. And so now this creates a very interesting space for Russia to sort of recover some of its reputation, some of its prestige. Um, that it has lost over these past few years, right? And, and you can you, you notice that. You notice that Russian diplomats have a new spring in their step, that they feel a little bit more comfortable, confident about themselves, um, just like a number of other countries. And once again, uh, I know this segment is explicitly not the Western bubble, but you see the damage of the Western bubble because these countries can actually occupy this space because the West is so inward-looking and so out of touch with the dynamics that Russia and other countries are engaged with. Mm. Another country here is Turkey, um, as well, particularly uh, Erdogan, right? I mean, well, we, we do like to focus at, at, uh, on, on individuals uh, here, here in this podcast as well. And uh, Erdogan, right? I mean, he is 
listeners know from past episodes that I don't really like the term populist because it, it's also one of those um, inf- yeah terms that has been used uh, way too much in the past. But if you go back to the original uh, sense, right, of let me just do whatever is popular right now, uh, I think Erdogan is a, is a textbook populist because he started out in the beginning of October, right, right after this happened and uh, the violence started escalating. He started out as portraying himself as the mediator, as he has already done with uh, Ukraine and Russia, um, kind of in- increasing the importance of Turkey in the world, you know, using foreign policy to, to boost his, his domestic popularity. Um, but he very quickly realized that there's no interest in mediation right now. Uh, it is not, not from Israel, I don't think, uh, particularly from, from Hamas. Um, and then he shifted very quickly, like a good populist does, and uh, basically went a bit more towards the, um, well, anti-Israel um, hype train. I mean, this is also because of, you know, his his ideological similarities to the organization of Hamas or the background of it, right? It's both political Islam. Um, and and you see this uh, very intensely uh, right now, especially because Turkey has recalled its ambassador for, from Israel. They've really tried to improve relations over the past few years. And um, Turkey is realigning itself uh, as well. Yes, and this is one, the, the first bit that you said about Turkey is is the example of the other side of the way you quoted me before, right? So uh, even though international relations is shifting because of this conflict, the ability for a country like Turkey, the ability for international relations in general to influence the actual state of affairs in Gaza is minimal because Israel is pretty much um, fail-proof in that sense. They cannot be pressured into doing things or not doing things if they choose to go the other way. Israel, because of their long history of entrenchment and their their automatic support from the West, from the United States, from Germany, from Western Europe, means that the rest of the world, especially Turkey, has very, very little influence on the Netanyahu government. So then, obviously, the way to go about it, if international relations can't uh, have an impact on the conflict, is for international relations to use that conflict for other means. And that's exactly what you see right now. Turkey, just like Russia, is trying to carve out its own sphere of influence, where the Middle East is a very, very important pillar of that sphere of influence. And this aligns with their intuitive, certain with Erdogan's government's intuitive position anyway, and they will probably reap the rewards in the long term from this. Another country that's a democracy, but very much a personalistic government for, or has been a personalistic government for 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 quite some years now is India, with uh, with Prime Minister Modi. And here, honestly, I'm confused. I mean, this is because India is a bit out of my comfort zone when it comes to international relations. But India has been very much uh, aligned to the West almost, right? Very much been on the pro-Israel side. Again, whatever pro-Israel means. Yeah, well, India is a very interesting case. This would have been unheard of 20, 30 years ago um, with India always has has had this kind of non-aligned humanitarian approach to international relations, very much siding, if you like, more towards the Palestinian side of the conflict, more towards uh, the Arab world, also because of the very diverse nature of religion within India itself. But since Modi became prime minister, and let's remind our listeners, a Hindu nationalist, very much internally focused on um, a, if you like, a conflict between Hinduism and Islam within India, you see a realignment of India also in terms of moving away from Arab states, moving away from the Muslim world and moving towards Israel. On top of that, the fact that India has kind of started to disconnect itself from Western geopolitics, India no longer sees itself simply as a democracy among many other democracies. And therefore, uh, we need to side with the United States and Japan and and Western Europe. No, India now sees itself as a global leader, aggressively positions itself as such. And in their calculations, 
uh, that requires them to get closer to Israel. Uh, so you have a real shift in the in the approach that India takes when it comes to this conflict. 25 years ago, they would have not hesitated for one moment to vote with a resolution like this. Now, because they are disconnected to the West, but they do have to realign with Israel and uh, away from the Muslim world because of internal um, politics, India is changing its its behavior very, very explicitly. Yeah. I mean, I, for, from my perspective, uh, my, my first thought uh, when I heard about this was about that Israeli spy software Pegasus, which um, which Modi is also accused of, of using, particularly when it comes to critics, other politicians who, who might have a stance on Kashmir that doesn't align with his, with his own. Very, very clearly so. Um, keep in mind as well that India um, is at the moment, certainly at the diplomatic level, very much seeing itself as a independent voice, right? Uh, so, hey, we want to use Packers of spyware, we will use Packers of spyware. We don't have to listen to the moral preaching from our former colonial overlords. We don't need to accept any neocolonialism anymore because we have outgrown them. We have outgrown the West. Uh, our, our concerns are much bigger than anything the West can throw us at, at us. And, 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 and you see India as a result behaving like a completely different animal than they did for any of their previous history. The next player is Saudi Arabia. Um, as most of the listeners will know, a country that I have uh, I have looked at a bit in the past. And Saudi Arabia has been quiet, very quiet. Uh, there has been the initial statement of condemnation. They voted yes on the uh, resolution in the United Nations General Assembly, but very quiet, um, suspiciously quiet. And... I should go back for a second three weeks ago when the media and the, the initial interpretation of what Hamas did among many media voices uh, was, oh, Hamas wants to ruin the peace process between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And my reaction to that straight away was, if Hamas has that, I can't look into the minds of the Hamas leadership, but if that was their goal, then that's a really silly idea because it's not going to happen. And that's exactly how you're seeing it play out right now. So Saudi Arabia put out a statement relatively quickly within the first week, I believe, saying, hey, we reject the aggression of Israel against the Palestinian people. We are freezing any communications with Israel for the time being. And that was it. So everyone can understand that behind the scenes, communications between Israel and Saudi Arabia are just continuing as they have. And three months from now, they will formally continue. Uh, they will be re resumed. Uh, Saudi Arabia has too much at stake when it comes to connecting to India, when it comes to repositioning itself on the world stage, trying to move away from its oil-dependent economy, Vision 2030, and all those kinds of big projects, all those big plans to make Saudi uh, ready for a world where oil no longer rules uh, the waves. And to all of a sudden drop Israel from because of moral concerns uh, towards Palestinian people is too much to ask from Riyadh. Riyadh is not willing to go to go that far. And so Saudi Arabia takes a step back. They are not directly affected by it. Uh, they've put out their statement and they're just waiting for the time until until at some point they can resume talks with Israel. I mean, from my perspective, after having looked at the country for, for a few years now, I also, I mean, it, it is a, it's well known that the older generation of Saudi princes, especially the influential ones and particularly the king, are still very, very connected to the Palestinian cause. And the younger generation, very much the one that's in the driving seat right now, is a bit more pragmatic with it, right? Especially with the Constitution 2030. So I assume there might also be some form of, yeah, agreement not, not to say anything because internally they cannot agree. Yeah, and it, it's very clear that Saudi has taken this position, has made a very clear choice about 10 years ago that it is time for the younger generation to take over, right? Despite tradition, despite 
and seniority and generational authority and all those kind of things, uh, there, there was a clear understanding, which is in itself very sensible, that in order for Saudi Arabia to make a very difficult transition away from its oil dependence, they need to give the younger generation uh, the reins. And this is not just Mohammed bin Salman. This is not just the crown prince. This goes way beyond that, right? And as a result, I think that without having any insider knowledge that within Riyadh, the older generation is eating a bit of humble pie at the moment and saying, look, yeah, hey, we don't really like what's happening, but we have to accept that our sons and our grandsons are now um, going in a different direction. Uh, then I think uh, when we talk about China, I think this can be rather quickly, uh, simply because I mean China is is giving its usual um, well its usual statements of uh, we don't like aggression. Um, please, please don't have war. Have peace and trade with us. And one, once again, it fits perfectly into their long-term narrative. The West is making it extremely easy for them because uh, the West cannot claim the moral high ground here. Uh, and so China is in a very comfortable position within the UN and elsewhere. And once again, to listeners who are inherently skeptical about China, maybe because it's an authoritarian regime, maybe because they're concerned about human rights within China itself, keep in mind that China has a consistent modern history of non violence on the global stage unlike the west and so for china now to say we want the parties to um, provide humanitarian support to the palestinians we want parties to stop fighting we do not believe that violence is the answer is actually a very consistent message for them the west makes it easy um, and china is having the time of their life diplomatically at the moment The last actor is Egypt, uh, or the last actor we want to look at. And Egypt, right, I, I, I think Egypt is in a very difficult situation right now. Because, I mean, they were one of, they were the first Arab country to recognize Israel and, you know, it's, it's right to exist. Um, and with this, I mean, Egypt has always been, right, whenever the violence between Israel and, and Hamas uh, in Gaza would, would flare up, it would always be Egypt who would negotiate some form of truce or, or some form of ceasefire situation. Um, that's a bit more difficult right now, especially because the, the pressure on Egypt to open basically the, the gates, right, one of the border crossings to Gaza and let refugees into Egypt uh, is building. And, and Egypt is in this uncomfortable situation where, they, I mean, they've had this experience in the past when they let in uh, Palestinians. They also let in some of the of the Hamas fighters who, who weren't very happy with Egypt and then created domestic troubles uh, for Egypt. Well, and, and, and just looking at the situation in Lebanon and in Jordan when it comes to refugee camps, uh, Egypt is terrified of that, right? They want to avoid all of a sudden having 500,000 refugees that are not allowed back into Gaza because Israel basically wipes out Gaza infrastructure. Um, and uh, what are they going to do with that, right? This is a typical problem for the Arab world, but especially for Egypt, that it is one thing to be outraged or angry about a situation. It's another thing to actually put your money where your mouth is. To actually take action is a very, very difficult Uh, prospect because you as an Egyptian government also have a responsibility towards your own population. You you have a responsibility towards um, your position on the global stage. And it's a very unenviable position, especially knowing that Egypt were the first uh, to the leader leadership in recognizing Israel and its right of existence in 1978, right? So that that is kind of what started the dominance of Israel Uh, with respect to the Palestinians, until that moment e Israel was insecure about its existence. For the moment Egypt said in 1978, okay, we'll sign this peace treaty with you, that's the moment when Israel could start aggressively going after uh, the West Bank and to a certain extent Gaza as well. And so Egypt is now in this position of, well, what is our responsibility here? What can we do? What does the world expect from us? And... Um, what do we get out of this? And that's not an, that's not easy to answer. 
And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? When looking at the damage, um, the first one is obviously what's the problem here? It's the humanitarian suffering. Um, people are dying, and people. Uh, and and this, this is something that uh, you mentioned before the episode as well, right? It's not only people are dying, but it's also people getting injured. Um, and and we're not talking about, I don't know, a, a paper cut on a finger that can be fixed with a Band-Aid. We're talking about some serious injuries. This is a general problem in global media, right? This, this is not just relating to Gaza, but we overemphasize deaths compared to injuries. And... Uh, for every person dying, there's going to be three people who for the rest of their lives are in wheelchairs. Um, for every uh, mortal victim, there are a number of lives radically changed because of injury. And, and we, for some reason, are less emotionally involved in that because death sort of triggers a, a reaction that injury doesn't. But it's important to realize that uh, if you look at the numbers, uh, 30,000 or more than 30,000 people being injured, yeah, that's, that changes the lives, not just of those 30,000 people, but also their family who now have to take care of them. Some of them will recover. Some of them will just be a, a bullet in the arm and that can be solved. And some of them will never recover and will need long-term support from the society around them. Um, that is something that is under-recognized typically. Uh, during COVID, um, there was sometimes this, right, this form of communication that said, let's all pull through this together and afterwards we'll go to therapy together. Um, because we, right, I mean, we, we talk about uh, people dying, we talk about physical injuries, but I mean, obviously the mental and psychological toll on all sides, right? I mean, I, I, I can have noticed from, from some of my Israeli friends um, that obviously the... Uh, kind of the, the events on October 7th were deeply, deeply traumatizing because of the incredibly violent nature of the attacks. But the two million people in Gaza right now, right, who have to flee, who have very little to eat, who have probably no clean drinking water, no access to uh, to, to, to any form of, of, of medicine, um, and who have bombs raining down on them all the time. I mean, there, you have two million traumatized people. Who, who all need therapy. I don't know if there's that many therapists uh, in Gaza. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not. It's, uh, it's exactly the reason why three weeks ago when we did the first episode on this, I quoted Martin Luther King and the idea of violence begets violence, right? The, the, the violence that is being committed right now leads to a long-term violent backlash internally within, within, within Palestinian society, within the minds of the Palestinians, uh, but also lashing out in the future again towards Israel. And this is one of those big problems that sometimes if you read articles or you hear news reports these past couple of weeks about what's happening in Gaza, the idea is, okay, there's X amount of Hamas fighters, and as long as Israel kills those Hamas fighters, then it's done. But those acts of violence to actually go after those Hamas fighters, regardless of whether Israel has a right to do that or not, regardless of the morality of, of, of killing Hamas fighters or not. Um, the practical outcome of that violence is a spiral of further violence in the future because people are traumatized, because people have lost loved ones, people are losing loved ones every day in Gaza, and those people are not going to look kindly upon Israel in the future. So the... The, the living rather than the dead uh, out of this conflict are going to be the problem for Israel, right? And they obviously uh, cannot pretend that the only problem they're facing is a group with a clearly defined number of militants. Um, this, this group of militants is deeply, deeply connected to a larger society that has already felt the hardship and oppression of decades and decades of very, very destructive policy by by Israel. Right, so this is one of the damages and the problems that we identified uh, three weeks ago. Um, exactly, that the that current Israeli actions, uh, contrary to the government's belief, are not increasing Israel's security uh, w within the region. Right, it's 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 decreasing it. However, if we if we look at um, what we analyzed just before, right, the international relations perspective, and this 
and countries using this time to realign themselves um, or reposition themselves on the global stage. Israel is also currently breaking a lot of long-term dynamics that they've built up. I mean, I already mentioned Turkey, where Turkey basically recalled its ambassador. Um, but there's also, you know, the relations with, with Russia and with China that they've uh, built up over the past years. And this is a big deal, because if you want to summarize Israeli foreign policy over the past few decades, it is based on an understanding that the West might not be around in the long term to support Israel. Also an understanding that Israel technically doesn't really need the West in the same way anymore. Um, Israel can defend itself. It's a nuclear power. Um, it, it can probably look beyond Western geopolitics. And that's exactly what it has been doing. Um, at a foreign policy level, it has tried to connect with an awful lot of players that right now are furious with Israel. Or at the very minimum, that players that can gain credibility by denouncing Israel. So all that hard work over the past couple of decades of getting close to Moscow, getting close to Ankara, getting close to Beijing, um, getting close to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa, Nigeria, all those dynamics, all that investment, diplomatic, financial, um, cultural investment into connecting with the world, making Israel actually a global player is now being, well, at the very minimum damaged, if not destroyed. Um, because how do they claw back from this? And every day that the violence continues in Gaza is a day that they are losing train on the, uh, they're losing space on the world stage. The meta problem we have identified before is obviously, I mean, this is difficult to express uh, because, I mean, right, we, we've mentioned this in the fact sheet that the humanitarian suffering on the ground is terrible. And, right, so the explosion at the hospital, at the Al-Ali hospital, killing, killing a lot of people uh, is absolutely terrible. And, right, as a human, you always want to, you, you're always immediately drawn to to being sad, to maybe feeling angry, uh, depending on which side uh, you, you, you stand on this. And it leads to the damage and the problem of us losing focus, right? What we said at the beginning of this episode, that um, looking at these individual events is not helping us understand the bigger picture and to understand the environment that allows for this violence to happen. And we focus on a blame game instead of a big picture. And that environment that we should be looking at, the broad pick, the meta game, as you call it, uh, is not a explicit decision that you can pinpoint somewhere, right? There are important moments in history, like the 1978 Camp David Accords, that are major steps, but most of the environment is created through small incremental change. Um, and that environment is one where you have, um, again, to look at Western policymaking. The 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, was the West shaping the world into an image that it felt comfortable with. And it basically signaled to Israel and it signaled to uh, the world in general that it was comfortable with Israeli settlements. Not so much in the sense that they never complained about it, not so much in the sense that they, they never brought it up with Israel, like, hey, can you calm it down a little bit in the 1990s with your settlement policy and those kinds of things, of course. But overall, day after day, year after year, the West created an environment where Israel got an awful lot of leeway to double down on the destruction of Palestinian society. And as a result, that gave the Netanyahu government the long-term impression that they could get away with all of this. And you know what? They can now. Uh, because they, they can do enormous damage towards themselves and towards the Palestinian people. There is no backlash uh, directly visible. The backlash will be a realignment of a world where Israel will be more isolated and, and, and the West is once again losing further influence. But in the short term, Israel can do what it does it has no there is no control mechanism uh, over israel because it has had this very long-term environment that's been created by the west on top of that internally within israel it's very very useful and important to look at 
the domestic dynamics, right? A uh, state that started off as a very secular or socialist almost uh, state full of hope towards the future after the enormous destruction um, that the Jewish people had faced during the Second World War. And the moment that the state of Israel is essentially secured in its existence is the moment that secular society takes a step back and starts giving more and more power to the orthodox kind of extremist religious right of Israeli society. Once again, that is a process of decades. Once again, that is something that now informs the policymaking that exists in the Netanyahu government. And what now? When we talk about the future, um, there's always a lot of talk, right? I mean, so there's there's the people who are the pro and the pro side, right? The my side needs to win and my side needs to win. And then there's also the people uh, in the third position who always call for a big peace conference. Oh, let's have a peace conference. Uh, you know, let's all sit together on the same table and let's end this conflict, right? Which, let's be honest, is only going to put a, a stop to the immediate human suffering. But it doesn't necessarily solve any of the long-term you know, dynamics that we have looked at uh, in the past by now, our now, what you, what you have is these people who right now position themselves as moderates. Um, you know, they like to think of themselves as moderate. Most people like to think of themselves as moderates, by the way. Um, and uh, they do that by saying, hey, it is, there is still a path to peace. There is still a, a path to bring the parties together. And that implies that there are still two parties to speak of. Whereas in reality, and we've said this in previous episodes... The conflict itself, the structural conflict that we think about when it is the Palestinians versus the Israelis, is done. It's over. Israel is won. Um, so whenever then someone uh, with their voice of moderation and trying to sound reasonable says, let's get a peace process going, let's look at how we can bring peace, they don't re recognize the reality that there is no peace to be made in a situation where one side has basically been wiped out, because that's essentially the reality of the Palestinian people. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't look at solution for solutions, but those solutions are different types of solutions. They're not one where the Palestinians and um, the Israelis, a little bit like the 1990s with Arafat, um, sign, go, go to uh, New York and, and triumphantly uh, agree that from now peace for our time for now uh, from now on we will live together in harmony that's not going to happen but the solutions that can occur are not so much about bringing those two groups together but say what can we do with the uh, ashes from this conflict um, the Palestine Palestinian society has basically been burned to the ground there is very little structural um, institutional identity left neither in the West Bank nor in Gaza um, what can the global community do to actually now help the Palestinians that has nothing to do with you know creating an, uh, an, 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 an emboldened enemy for Israel because that enemy is essentially gone Hamas yeah Hamas is a group that uses terrorist tactics to still fight Israel but nobody thinks that Hamas will somehow reconquer um, lost territory it's just not going to happen so the question is how can the palestinians right now be helped after 70 or 80 years of suffering and that will require the west the arab world um, to change their mindset and to change their approach to this problem um, there are uh, a million refugees palestinian refugees can we please find a way for them to lead normal lives outside of refugee camps? That might not mean um, going back to their homelands because Israel will not allow that. But maybe they can settle elsewhere. Maybe they can be given at least the opportunity, if they want to, if they choose to do so, to, um, to be given a house in London or Paris or New York uh, or in Riyadh or elsewhere. Uh, 
let's see what can we do with the remnants in uh, Gaza that have been now further destroyed, of course, by the last three weeks. How can we help people in Gaza at least have some semblance of a normal life? The babies that are born now in the West Bank, how can they be provided an education and a lifestyle that allows them to shape their own future? If the world were to come together to focus on that rather than big talk about peace and, 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 and Palestinians versus Israelis, then that would actually have practical impact. But in order to do that, the first step is to recognize that there is no peace possible anymore and certainly not a two-state solution because there is no room for a Palestinian state as long as Israel refuses to go back to borders that are long gone. This seems like a great moment to end our third conversation on the Israel-Hamas armed conflict. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? Um, I went back into a comfort zone, namely looking at the great Mark Twain, who is the solution for any quote, if you ever look for one. And he wrote, anger is an asset that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured.